Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the fourth section, the fourth Aliyah of the Parsha of Noah, the story of Noah, and right now the story of the flood. And God spoke to Noah, saying, The combination of the words Vaidaber and Lemor, as in Vaidaber X L Y Lemor, indicates a command, meaning God is commanding Noah to exit the ark. Perhaps Noah doesn't want to get out of the ship. Perhaps he's scared of what might lie ahead. Perhaps he's afraid to restart civilization lest it be destroyed again. However, I think the point of commanding Noah to get out of the ark is to demonstrate that the need for Noah to reconstitute civilization is part of a covenantal relationship. Noah is doing it not only because he wants to, which he probably does, but because he must do so because God wants him to. And that relationship is important to establish, and it's established by issuing this command. There will be some more commands below some of the seven Noahide laws, the moral laws that all people must live by, both Jew and Gentile, specifically a subset of laws dealing with the shedding of blood, which we will see at the end of this Aliyah. Exit the ark, you and with you, your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. As we've seen in the previous Aliyot, the command verbs are singular. Here the word say is singular, and they focus only on Noah. And as I said before, we could it's possible to say that this indicates that it was only due to Noah's worthiness that the others survived. His sons, his sons' wives, his own wife only survived because Noah deserved it. However, it could just mean that Noah is the focus of the family as the patriarch of the new civilization and of his family, and therefore all verbs focus primarily on him without necessarily impinging the honor, dignity, uh, or goodness of those around him. There is a famous rabbinic reading uh, between the line, what's called a drash, based on the exit order from the ark. When they were entering the ark, the order was that Noah should go and his sons, and then Noah's wife, and then his kids' wives. So here, his son's wife. So here we have Noah and his wife paired up together. And then his kid and his kid's wives paired up together. So based on this, the Midrash says that procreation was forbidden as long as they were on the ship due to the suffering of the world around them. However, once they disembarked, they were able to act as husbands and wives do. The only problem is that later on, in just a few verses, we'll see that the order will revert back to males first followed by females. I think that the reason why the order changes here is because God wants to emphasize that by leaving the ship, Noah and his families are in fact starting a new civilization, and the ordering sort of puts forward into Noah's mind that the job of partnering up with husband and wife is essentially the main and primary means to repopulate the world, so uh, get cracking as God might say, or probably as God wouldn't say, but as we might say. All life that is with you from all flesh, meaning all living things, from birds to beasts to the creepy crawlies that crawl on the earth, bring them out with you and let them team forth on the earth. They will be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Notice that God is not commanding the animals here as he did in the chapter 1 of creation where he said, you shall be fruitful and multiply. Here he just says to Noah, just bring them out and they'll do the job by themselves. The language is clearly and intentionally, however, recalling, and in some cases actually duplicating word for word, the language of the creation from chapter 1. And that's because 
essentially, this is creation mark two. This is a recreation of the world, and God is making the point. Essentially, Noah is the new Adam. Uh, it mentions the, uh, it does not mention the wild animals. It only mentions behemoth come out of the ark. So either they went out on their own, they didn't need help from Noah being wild animals, or it's possible that they're included in the generic term behema, which usually means domesticated animals, but could mean all animals. Uh, note also, uh, we have more, uh, use of the creation terminology back from chapter one. Here it says that the animals are taken out of the ark uh, in order to uh, be fruitful and multiply. This is Noah doing the taking out. But back in chapter 1, it was the earth that took out the animals. Totsei ha'aretz nefesh chaya. There's that same uh, verb, let the earth bring forth breathing life, etc. And Noah exited, and with him were his sons and his wife and his sons, Wives. As I said, we go back to first males and then females order, and as far as I know, no one suggests that they were again commanded to be celibate. As I said, this is the normal order, and the reason why we deviated from the norm earlier and put Noah next to his wife and his sons next to his sons' wives is to say, hey, you got a command to do, and that's to reproduce as husband and wife. All life, all things that tread, and all birds, I guess it includes them also because they don't really tread as much as they fly, all things that creep on the earth, according to their own families, exited the ark. The word lemishpachotehem, according to their own families, is a bit strange, not only because we haven't seen it used before, neither here nor in chapter 1 in the creation narrative, uh, but because it really anthropomorphizes the animals. I mean, lemishpachotehem indicates that they have families, which is not really an animal term. Now, we have seen an anthropomorphization of animals to Aliotigo, where they were re- referred to not as male and female, but as husband and mate. So, this may just be another way of saying limino, that each one went out according to a species, or it may be saying, as one commentator suggests, that the animals did in fact procreate on board. They had little pups or whatever little animals they had, and they all went out as families together. Uh, and moreover, um, assuming that the animals were involved in the sin of mixing species, which was a very midrashic idea, but if there was that idea, the idea comes back here to indicate that the animals behaved appropriately on the ship. And now in verse 20 of chapter 8, the name of God changes from the universal Elohim, the God that created the world, the God is commanding Noah to recreate the world, and we're now changing the name, the name of God changes to the personal covenantal name for God, Yudke Vavke, Hashem, uh, uh, and, and that name is appropriate because Noah is going to be offering sacrifices, and that's what one uh, offers sacrifices to as part of a covenantal experience. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took from every pure animal... Oh, sorry, I didn't read the Hebrew. Let me go back. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took from every pure animal, and from every pure bird, and he offered them as a burnt offering on the altar. There are a few things to note here. Uh, one is uh, the language, and he took the animals... And here he's taking them as a sacrifice, but it matches Noah's taking of the animals into the ark, and I think that establishes a correlation between the two events. That is, because Noah saved all the animals by taking them to the ark, he has the right to take those animals, or at least a subsection of them, to sacrifice to God as thanks. 
By the way, not every pure animal or pure bird, a tahor, is appropriate for sacrifice according to Mosaic law. Uh, there are many tahor uh, birds which can be eaten according to Mosaic law, Jewish law, but only doves are appropriate for sacrificing. Um, I would guess that Noah took one from each species of clean animal and sacrificed it, uh, regardless of whether it would be later permitted based on Mosaic law, because I think all Noah knows about is the, the pure animals from the non-pure animals, and not specifically which ones would later be used by uh, the Israelites. Um, it's also clear now that the overstocking of the pure animals, that they went in pairs of seven, was really not primarily for sacrificing, since he just takes one animal of each type. It's clear that the overstocking was for the sake of repopulating um, these pure animals in large numbers, because these are the animals which are needed for a repopulation of human civilization, for food, for plowing, for domestication, etc., and the Lord smelled the pleasing smell. Note the play between Noah's name Noah and the word pleasing Nichoach. Uh, there are many such plays on Noah's name and the words which are used here. Note also, of course, before I continue on with the verse, that there's some considerable anthropomorphization here. Hashem here as if he has a nose and he's physically smelling the incense uh, or, or the smell of the burnt offerings. Now, of course, all of this is a metaphor for God accepting the offering. And in fact, by the time the Torah moves on to the practical issues of sacrifices, both in the books of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus, Shemot and Vayikra, God is never, well, almost never, I'll get back to when he is, but essentially he's never referred to as smelling the smells of sacrifice. In fact, the sacrifices themselves are referred to as a reach nichoach. It becomes a technical term, reach nichoach. I'll give you an example. In Vayikra 2.12, it says regarding a certain grain offering that should not be offered on the altar as, as a, that it should not be alter, offered on the altar as a reach nichoach. That, that means it shouldn't be a reach nichoach, meaning that the term is a synonym for you are, this is an unacceptable sacrifice, not that it's some kind of nice smell. Um, now, I said there was one time where it does say God smells, and that's in the Tochacha at the end, in chapter 26 of Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, where it says, should the people deviate consistently and repetitively from the covenant, God will destroy their temple, and after that God says, Velo ariach I will not continue to smell your reach nichoach, meaning God will not accept the offerings that are no longer going to, because they're no longer going to be brought, those offerings that are meant to please, to, to, that God should find favor with us, that he should accept us, that he should absolve us from the sins, there will be no more, uh, no more reach nichochem, and therefore God will not ariach in them. Uh, sure, it's an anthropomorphization, but the sense is that God will not no longer accept them. Returning to the verse, which is still quite anthropomorphistic, Vayom Adonai Alibo, and God decided, I will never again curse the land, Adama, because of man, Adam, even though the mind of man plans wickedness even from his youth, and I will never again smite all the things that as in the way that I have done. Um, I avoided a lot of 
very contortionist philosophizing by translating the word ki yetzer leva adam, the word ki, not as because man is, man has, uh, thinks or plans evil in his heart from, from early on, from young days, but even though or in spite of the fact that man plans evil in his heart from early days. First of all, it doesn't make sense for God to say, I won't curse the land and make man suffer for it because he has plenty of evil in, from his youth. It, it's in spite of his evil plans, even though man does plenty of evil even from his youth. Nonetheless, God won't bring this level of punishment where the land itself is corrupted. This sense of the word key as in spite of or even though rather than because of is evident from a similar scenario where, where right after the sin of the golden calf, Moshe pleads that, that God should not abandon them. And he says in Exodus in Shemot 34, 9, Moshe says, Adonai yelech na Adonai bekir beinu ki am kshayorifu. O Lord, let the walk, let the Lord, that is you should walk in our midst, even though it is a stiff-necked nation. Clearly it doesn't mean because they are a stiff-necked nation, God should remain among us. And so even though they, I admit they're a stiff-necked nation, nonetheless continue to walk with us. Um, now you can make it work out the other way, I guess with because, but as I said, not with some really serious philosophical contortions. And this is especially true because it's very important to note that here God is not saying that man is evil from birth. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, and he's not even saying man is evil from his youth. He's saying, Yetzer Lev Adam, that man from his youth begins to desire and to plan evil things. That means not that man is inherently evil, but it is part of what man does is that he starts thinking about all kinds of terrible things to do. And it's a very bad thing, but because it's so ingrained on man to start to plot evil, even if he's not inherently evil, that in spite of that, God won't react in the way that he has reacted up to this point. This goes all the way back to when Adam did evil, and 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 Noah's father, in fact, predicts that Noah will alleviate Adam's sins. Adam's sin, Cain's sin, and because of them, the earth was really kind of whipped into a terrible shape, which caused not only them to suffer, but a lot, uh, many to suffer. So even though man is going to continue to act in bad ways, God is saying, in spite of that, I am not going to act in the way that I have done to curse the very earth which is underneath the feet of man. Ad, in fact, what he is going to do, od, sorry, not ad, od kol yimei ha'aretz, zera v'katsir v'kor v'chom, v'kayetz v'chorev v'yom v'layla lo yishpotu. As long as the earth lasts, sowing and harvesting times, cold and hot times, the summer and the winter times, the day and the night, all of these will never cease. I remember learning when I was a kid that when God said he wouldn't uh, destroy the earth as he did, that it meant God wouldn't bring a mobble of flood, but he could destroy the world some other way. But that doesn't seem to be the sense here. The sense here is that as long as the world lasts, which we have to assume is forever, at least into messianic times, God is not going to destroy the world, that the seasons will continue, day and night will continue, the world will not be altered. Now, it could be that God is just talking about a local event, that it was during the 365 days of the flood, which is a solar year, which is connected to the whole harvest season, because the harvest season is based on solar year, not a lunar year. So it could be with all the rain from above and the flood and no doubt the hurricanes and the storms and the clouds and what have you, that 
sowing and harvesting was obviously impossible, but even day and night were effectively displaced because they were of no use to man as he was locked up in the uh, ark. And God is promising that he won't go back to that. But I think it's more than that. I think that God is going all the way back to the curses upon the earth that he made after Adam's sin and Cain's sin. You know, if I wanted to get scientific, I would say that maybe the axis of the world is being set aright here in order to allow seasons, reliable, predictable, agriculturally uh, sound, uh, uh, an earth which essentially has the ability for man to cultivate it and to sustain an ever-growing civilization without constant suffering and uncertainty. Maybe for the first time in a thousand years since Adam and Cain messed things up, God may be sort of tilting things back on their axis, if you will. Maybe literally, maybe just figuratively. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. Again, the point is that this is the second creation of earth, the creation of earth Mark 2. Um, and now we're going on to a new phase, really, where because of God, a man saving the animals, certain things are now man's due above and beyond what existed in creation, Mark 1, back in chapter 1. And the fear of you and the dread of you will be on the animals of the earth and the birds in the sky. Anything that treads over the earth and anything that is in the sea is given into your hands, meaning, as we will see, to eat it. Which is new, because in creation Mark 1, in the beginning of creation with Adam, man could only be a vegetarian. Take a look there, it's quite clear. Eating meat was either desired by man, but forbidden by God, or man was created in such a way that he didn't even desire flesh. But from now on, kol remes asher huchai lachem yielochla ki yerek esev natati lachem et kol. Anything that treads, anything that has life, which seems to include fish as well, is yours to eat, just like vegetation was. Everything is given to you. I mean now given to you. And that brings up the famous question of, does God want man, us, in the 21st century, to be vegetarian or not? And I think. There are two ways to go here. On one hand, it could be that because of the debt owed by the animals to man, because because Noah saved all of them, man was given the right to fulfill the desire that he had had all along, even from the time of creation of Adam, which means he always wanted to eat meat, but God wouldn't allow him to do it. But now that man did what he did, so he has the right. There are even some commentators that say in the time of the Mashiach, we'll go back to being vegetarian and that really it's not right for us to eat meat, but God acquiesces because of what we did. On the other hand, it could be that, that God said thank you for man's role in saving the animals by giving him a new desire to eat meat, that he didn't feel like eating meat before and now he's given a new gift and it should be looked at as a gift, albeit a gift that is constrained by the idea that only by making sacrifices to God can man channel his desire to eat meat in appropriate ways, in addition to some more prohibitions to come, as we'll see. There are other ways to look at it. These are maybe the two primary ways. However, since the Torah doesn't specify the reason for the change, from vegetarianism to man being able to be omnivorous, 
I really, you know, I sh- I'm not going to speculate or, or, or certainly give a halachic ruling on whether we should all be vegetarians or not. I'll leave that up to your own consciences and your own uh, studies of the text. Unfortunately, this is not the forum to fully explore all of the opinions and attempt to come up to at least some possibilities. And the problem is that now, in fact, whether it's good or bad, Pandora's box is open. Man will find himself spilling the blood of animals in order to eat them. And that violence, which is inherent in that process, requires restrictions to keep man uh, from letting too much stuff out of, spilling out of Pandora's box. But you may not eat flesh with the lifeblood in it. From this verse, we get the Noahide prohibition of Aver Menachai, meaning animals or pieces of them may not be eaten while the animal is still alive. The next verse is a bit convoluted and is in the form of biblical poetry, so I'll break it up into its poetic pieces, and perhaps that will help us understand how to interpret it. But there are many, many different interpretations of every section of this text. But for you, for your own blood of your own selves, I will seek out, meaning I will avenge, I will mete out punishment. What this means is you can kill animals, but don't you dare uh, uh, do the following. That I will punish. And God says, means taking your own blood, which is a prohibition against suicide. Ebenezer doesn't like this interpretation and says that it is a general statement about taking others' lives, which we are about to detail in a second. However, I think that uh, it seems that suicide is the plain sense of this prohibition, as Rashi says. And the sense is that once we start killing things as part of our daily uh, process, once we start slaughtering and slaughtering, then we start to, there's a certain uh, violence and animalistic nature which can spill over into other realms as well. Miyad kol chaya edrashenu, from the hand of every animal I will avenge. So if we interpret chaya as animal, which not everyone does, but most commentators do, uh, it seems to be that if the animal shed human blood, God will also uh, seek it out. God will also avenge. And what I would say is this seems to me that if an owner allows his animal to kill a man, God will, first of all, demand the animal to be put to death. And the owner as well, if he's irresponsible in any way, will have to play a, a kofar enough show, an atonement fee, to make up for the fact that the owner really should be put to death for causing the death of somebody else. But since we don't kill a person for the action of their animals, they pay a price not equal to the victim's uh, a self, but to his own self to show, I'm going to pay this money as an atonement for myself, because really I deserve to die for what I did. There are other interpretations, but I'll stick with this one, which really ties into the whole book, the whole, um, the whole parsha of Mishpatim uh, over in Sefer Shemot, which you will learn, which we'll get to, uh, I don't know, in some weeks from now or months from now. Umiyad, finally, Umiyad Adam, Miyad Ish Achiv, or I should say another part is from the hand of man, from the hand of man against his brother. This seems to be a prohibition against uh, murder. That is, if man kills man, God will also uh, seek vengeance. Uh, Rashi says that the two parts mean minha adam. The first part means intentional murder, and miyad ish achiv means a man who killing his brother. And since a person loves his brother, it can't be talking about intentional death, murder, but manslaughter, or what's called uh, bishogeg. And even there, there is a price that must be paid, although a lesser price, exile into a city of refuge. 
Um, you know, that's certainly possible. Um, I would say that looking back at Cain and Abel, it doesn't seem like so far-fetched that brothers would be able to kill themselves also intentionally, heaven for fen, but, uh, but uh, that is how Rashi interprets these two parts. Essentially, murder intentional and murder accidental but irresponsible, or what they call murder and manslaughter. Edrosh, finally, the section ends off, Edrosh and Nefesh Adam, and this seems to be an overall conclusion, a summation, which says, for all of these previous cases, I will seek out, I will avenge the life of man when it is taken, whether you take it yourself, whether an animal takes it, or whether you take the life of someone else intentionally or unintentionally. The next verse explains the principle that God is employing for all of these prohibitions and retributions against spilling human blood. Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafech. If you notice, it's exactly, it's actually, um, I forget what it's called when all the letters in a word are, are uh, forwards and then backwards. So we have the word shofech, then dam ha'adam, and then we have exactly backwards, ba'adam, then dam, and then yishapech. It's A-B-C, C-B-A. One who spills another man's blood, because of that man whose blood he spilled, his own blood must be spilled. And that, I think, is the principle of what we call mida k'neged mida, measure for measure, crime of uh, and consequence more than crime and punishment, or to put it in Newton's term, for every action there must be an equal and opposite reaction. It's built into the system. The rabbis understand the word adam differently than I just explained it. They say it means by witnesses or by human court, which means that the only way to punish is to have witnesses in a court to uh, correctly uh, process any kind of death penalty. Um, and the reason for all of this consequence for taking a life is as follows. In the image of God, he, that is God, made man. Now, what this means is difficult because it's not, it wasn't even completely clear what God meant when he said that he created God in man, uh, man in God's own, own image. It may mean that man must be punished for taking life because he was given the gift to comprehend the significance and evil of murder. Or it could mean, and I kind of prefer this one, that the killing of man is essentially to take a creature who is God imbued, who has the spark of divinity in him, and to turn him into a, a, a lifeless, um, a, a crumpled piece of human flesh without any dignity whatsoever. Indirectly, what that means is that killing man, regardless of how that killing is done, is like killing a small spark of the divine that God has gifted this world with by inserting a small spark of himself into his primary creation. And any attempt to take that through irresponsibility with one's animals, through suicide, God forbid, through murder, through irresponsible or depraved indifference to human life, all of that requires retribution because essentially one has snuffed out a piece of God in this world. But in the end, so to speak, not that God could be snuffed out, but the spark of God that he gives to man. But in the end, to sum up, to move on to a slightly happier verse, God says, essentially, rather than worrying about all the ways that man could lose his life, or lose his soul by taking another life, God repeats where he opened up with, Va'atem peru urvu v'shirtsu va'aretz urvufa. Instead, you be fruitful and multiply and team forth in the earth and multiply in it. And again, not only do we have the duplication of the need to to uh, to 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 be prosperous, not prosperous, but to 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 go out and, and to have many children and to populate the world. We have the duplication of the word revu, perhaps because God is saying, "Listen, there's a lot of rebuilding to get started with Noah, so maybe we should get on it right away."